0: Support for Full Circle comes from Oak Bay Bikes. Serving cyclists in Victoria for over 80 years, Oak Bay Bikes has two locations and free pickup drop-off service. They are there wherever you need them. Find Oak Bay Bikes online at oakbaybikes.com.
1: You're listening to Full Circle. I'm your host, Jordan Barron, In this series, we feature stories from the Greater Victoria area that speak to what really matters to Vancouver Islanders. When asked if she gets special treatment at restaurants in Victoria, Elizabeth Monk, a journalist for EAT magazine, chuckles.
2: I'd like to explain that there's two types of food writing. There's food criticism and there's food journalism. And they're both important. EAT does food journalism.
1: Elizabeth doesn't expect any red carpet rolled out, or even a special creation made just for her.
2: Uh, The reality is they can't go changing their menu just because I've come for a visit. They don't have time.
1: (laughs) She explains that although the menu of an eatery is what most people are there for, there's so much more to know about a dish than just what is on the plate.
2: You can meet with the owner delve deeper into what her mission is or what his philosophy is. So that's the kind of story that you'll read in Eat Magazine.
1: And her job, as she puts it, is to get the story that comes with the food so that her readers can know more.
2: I get the story. I do try the food and I write about the food. I sample the menu. I do have a conversation and learn tons about why they started the business and especially where they source from.
1: That's what's so fascinating about reading or hearing stories about food every type of cuisine, every dish created, has a history and a journey from soil to plate. The food you consume affects you, too. It may be who you eat with, where you get your food from, or how much you spend to get it. But it's safe to say that food dictates a certain part of how we interact with the world. And the food world here in Victoria is a vibrant one. The people who tend to the crops, who season the dish just right add a little piece of themselves into what they are creating for you. All in all, food isn't just about filling your belly, it's about keeping a wide array of cultures alive and well. In this episode, we delve into the vastly diverse culture of food that can be found in Victoria. We take a tour of a native plant garden and plant restoration project on Wasanich territory. We speak to a food journalist about the best spots in town to expand your palate and we investigate the claims that brunch is causing young people to throw away their dreams of ever owning a house. From CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, I'm your host, Jordan Barron. This is Full Circle. Stay tuned. There's no way of talking about resilient cultures in Victoria without mentioning the tireless work that this island's indigenous communities do to keep their culture alive. This work can be seen in a garden created on the grounds of a hay new tribal school near Saanich Papekin hay which translates to Blossoming Place, is a green space and garden where students of the Wasanich School Board learn about how many of the native plants have been used by their ancestors since time immemorial. We had the privilege of learning more about how many of these native plants were used from the teachings of Wasanich elder Earl Claxton Jr. and Judith Lynn Arney, who explained the many uses of pine needles, camis bulbs, and more. That's next in Papekin Hayout.
3: Long ago, our, our people uh, worked as a community. The food was all, when the, all the men went out to the, the reef net to catch salmon for for the whole community. All the women and all the children and all the old people went and lived in the forest in the summertime and picked berries all summer for use uh, to be saved because they needed to be dried in the sun, uh, right dry, so that they could be stored over winter and used in the wintertime. And the salmon was dried right hard. It was uh, about seven days in the smoker and my dad used to pound his on the table. He said, it was that hard. He said, it was just maybe bone dry. It was hard. I can remember walking into uh, the longhouse when I was young and looking up to the rafters and seeing salmon being stored there. Uh, yeah, We've got uh, many plants to show you and talk about. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Hi.
0: At the corner of the Heowenuch tribal school's green space sits a garden and greenhouse filled with plants that one would see on a walk around the area. Small pine trees make their way out of the ground beside red-berried shrubs and stocky green growth. All of the plants in this garden do more than one job. They are in fact pleasing to look at and they make the school's green space more beautiful, but they are also being grown for their nutritional value. In this space, which is called Hayote, Wisainich elder Earl Claxton Jr. and garden director Judith Lynn Arney are teaching the school students about plants native to the Wisainich area, about how those plants were used traditionally, and about the joys of growing food from seeds. I visited Pipikinheot on a sunny afternoon just before the end of summer. Earl Claxton Jr. welcomed me to his territory and gave me the story of his name.
3: My English name is uh, Earl Claxton Jr. and my Sinchathan name is And That name comes from my great-grandfather from Malahat, who long ago, when the European people first came here, they couldn't speak our language and we couldn't speak theirs. And so they came into our territory with a hat and we were asked to pick a name out of the hat and that would become our last name my great-grandfather refused. He said, no, my name is Thethayton, and that's it. I'm not changing my name. And so Claxton is the anglicized version of uh, Thethayton. So I always thank my great-grandfather for his stubbornness long ago, because uh, other families have names like Joe and Bill and Smith and Henry.
0: He was joined by Judith Lynn Arney. My name is Judith Lynn
4: Arney, and I am ancestrally a child of the British Isles. My dad's a direct immigrant from Britain. My role here is the director of this program, and we've been working here for six years. Earl has been the elder of the program since it started, and protocol guide among many other valuable contributions. And yeah, uh, all around everything. Yeah, that's right. We've just been working hard to um, build this program that has uh, integrated food skills education, really hands-on, really participatory, which honors the knowledge that the students bring with them.
0: Earl and Judith took me on a tour of Papik and Hayards, different areas, and we got a taste of some traditional, ground-grown treats from the blossoming garden. So... Everything that you can see here,
4: the students participated in planting. So this really, like, there's a lot of kind of love and chaos—the delightful combination of both things—in this space.
3: Yes, and we, we use it as a, a teaching area here mm-hmm. as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what types of skills are taught at the and Yard?
3: We do um, mm. pretty well everything in regards to uh, gardening, uh, soil amendment, and um, Compost. composting, transplanting, seeding, cooking, cooking, yeah, and organizing yeah, feasts.
4: A feast, yeah, summer events, traditional salmon bake connection, clam bake connection during our feast. Mm-hmm. The goal is around food skills and hands-on food skills, practical food skills, and again the sharing from the youth as well as us sharing what we know with them and having that be like a collaborative and like participatory, hands-on, fun, getting dirty. You know, sometimes we talk about like Shovel 101 and it can be actually really empowering for people to learn how to use tools as well as the like heartwarming and, um, experience of them really warming up to and like getting used to and familiar with both traditional and healthy foods.
3: Yes, and also with um, experiencing the elements, Mm. like being outside and not being stuck inside, uh, doing video games or watching movies or whatever, being eager to be outside, getting their fingernails dirty, that (laughs) kind of thing.
0: Outside of the fenced area where the native plant nursery is kept, there are two separate green spaces that each display an ecosystem found on Vancouver Island. We first walked to the Forest Native Plant Garden. I am told that the Sanchothan name for forest is Sisich. This spot is populated with evergreen trees and medium sized berry bushes. This is
4: also a nice one for, for medicinal qualities. This is the, the grand fir or the dewy And um, this one has. I invite you to high school.
0: Judith thanks the tree as she picks a needle from it
4: invite you to um taste it's got a good like vitamin c kick oh yeah mm-hmm. and the kids actually love this one they come along and they remember and they like pick the leaves and
3: this one uh, particular one also has another quality to it and that's uh the bumps on the stem here okay. you can see how it's bumpy here there's a liquid on the inside of the uh, bump and that was used for a wound. You could put it on on there and it would uh, either glue the skin together or cover it over, kind of like a bandage. And it has uh, antiseptic qualities to it. And also, when you use that for cuts, particularly, it uh, won't leave a scar. So those are
0: just
4: a few of the highlights from our forest garden.
0: Next, we move over to the meadow plant garden.
3: Well, actually, a gary oak ecosystem, That's right. specifically.
0: The ground is covered in soil and wet oak leaves, with some yellowy shoots sprouting up from underneath. Earl reaches out to one of these shoots and reveals that at the root of the stalk, a camas bulb is growing.
3: The camas is um, a replication of the gary oak. And we have a, an oak, a little oak that we planted in here. And we also, we transport um, the leaves of the oak and use it as a a mulch on here in the winter time and that's to do two things it keeps the weeds down and also the leaves when they decay and go into the soil uh, they have an acidity and so camas likes that kind of uh, acidity and grows there the saanich used to eat lots and lots of camas that was our potato before the Hunitam people came. The Saanich cultivated and they were able to harvest huge bulbs the size of of your fist. Mm -hmm. And they did this because they found out that if you dig the bulb up and then transplant it back in the ground, that it stimulated bulb growth. Mm -hmm. And they would create these huge bulbs. So our actual uh, goal, I guess, in the future is to be able to, to have a large amount of these kind of bulbs available, and then cook them in the pit cook, because um, they need to be cooked about three hours in the ground to convert the starches uh, into good sugars. When the Hunitim people came, they introduced potatoes to us, and potatoes was um, so similar to the way we grew our camas, that we easily switched over to just eating potatoes. So that today, almost all Saanich people have never tasted a camas, or even know that we used to eat camas. So that's how quickly and how swift that changeover was with the potato.
0: Why is it important to grow food and plants that are indigenous to the Wasanich territory?
3: Well, I think I mentioned it earlier, it's because of the disappearance of some of the plants and um, how they the Hunitan people had no use for that plant well we need to teach those people about about the usefulness of all the native plants here mm-hmm. because they keep importing into their garden plants that require water and and we're on an island here and we need to be able to find ways to cut down mm-hmm. on the on the use of the water and, and uh, I find it to be uh, making a green lawn a real waste of water. And that uh, we need to be able to convert people and tell them that they should be converting their their lawns into uh, native plant gardens because the native plants are used to the the weather here and there. they don't require uh, extra water. So that would be a way of uh, cutting down on the water. And also it would teach them about um, the, the use of it, the food, the tool or the medicine and if they learned those things uh, I think we'd be in a better place here.
0: How do you incorporate cultural practices into the education that your students are taught?
3: Uh, I think it kind of um, boils down back to myself in that um, first, all First Nations peoples are you know, victims of the residential school and so there was a plan or an attack on First Nations people that uh, they wanted to take the Indian out of us and for us to become like uh, Hunitan people to dress like them and, and speak like them. So they abolished all those things, uh, sent us to residential schools and I think right now there's a kind of a renaissance of, a, of uh, the cultural uh, feeling and First Nations people are, are proud to be First Nations again, uh, don't need to be Hiding that uh, uh, practicing their treaty rights or doing any of those things is, is, a, is a proud thing now. And so um, I think there's an, uh, a real um, push in regards to trying to capture the, that culture before it disappears. That's what we do here is um, we, we have a, a Sanchothan speaker that we just, and she's really good. She speaks... Sanchothan, and uh, we rely on her to, mm-hmm. to talk ab- about the uh, Sanchothan names for the plants. And Like, I can talk about the plants, but I don't know uh, Sanchothan uh, well enough to speak it, even though my father was a fluent Sanchothan speaker.
4: On that note, the native plant nursery?
3: Yes! I think that's next. We walk past
0: a few rows of garden beds, where the students of Heowenuch tribal school learn how to plant their own seeds and saplings. I notice a vine of grapes growing up the fence of the area, while fruit trees waiting to be planted rest in pots. Earl recounts a story of picking fruit from the trees when visiting his grandparents while growing up, and tells me that Papikinheot is really focusing on bringing fruit trees into the garden. We step into a large greenhouse-type enclosure, where rows of plants are being nursed in soil. Judith explains that each of these plants will be used in restoration projects where the plants will be reintroduced to their native areas of growth.
4: Um, maybe do you want to speak to the kachmin? Sure, yeah.
3: yeah. Yes, and so this plant <coughs> here is uh, called the kachmin in uh, Senchatten. This was the plant that was used to, to help fight or cure or battle uh, tuberculosis. Tuberculosis used to be called consumption and the English name for this plant is uh, Indian consumption plant and it was the seeds of this plant that are used and harvested. You would take the whole uh, stem and cut it down here and bundle bundle them together and they were hung behind the stove usually and they were kept dry there. I can remember my grandmother going, taking seeds and then sprinkling it on the top of the stove and uh, seeing the little smoke rising up and uh, the smell that filled the, the house. They did testing on it at uh, UVic and uh, University of British Columbia, and they found that, that the smoke from this seed inhibits uh, mold growth, and so this would be an important thing to reintroduced back into our communities because mold growth is a a real serious health issue in uh, almost all first nations i believe this was a good thing and also this would be sometimes taken uh, by uh, speakers in the longhouse that were speaking for long periods and getting sore throat and hoarse they would chew on the seed and so you can pick a seed and, and try one if you if you like. Sure.
0: I plucked two seeds from the plant and popped them in my mouth. Hmm. I'm trying to think of what it reminds me of.
3: Well, when I tell you what family it's in, you'll know.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to say celery, but that's not. Mm-hmm.
3: That's what it is. Huh. In it's in family. the celery family.
0: Yeah, I can I can definitely taste it. Yeah. So what do you hope the Bacon here will do for the Wazanich community?
3: Well, I see it as a pioneering program. Uh, I always thought that um, gardening and, and plant knowledge it should be as part of the uh, curriculum of, uh, of schools, but they don't touch on it at all. And so I see this as a as a way for us to show them the way. And, mm-hmm. and people will come and uh, say, come and do it for us too, for our school. So that's my dream is that this to be a, an ongoing program and, and actually become part of the education system.
4: Also, to address people's hunger. Sometimes kids show up hungry, and if they know that they can grow food, like that's in the community, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. sometimes through the summertime we're having more people, like community members, coming in and using this place as a resource too, and like sometimes helping out or um, coming and going and like. This is becoming a community resource and a place that people know that they can drop by and if they want to learn about herbs or if they want to talk about some of the native plants or if they want to talk about any of the garden vegetables like that's the service we're intending to provide and that's for the youth and that's for the school and that's for the community in general and by extrapolation from the like model of our program to to the region or beyond you know.
0: You can find out more about Pipik and Hayot on the Victoria and Region Community Green Map at crdcommunitygreenmap.ca. Haychka Siem to Earl Claxton Jr. and Judith Lynn Arney for participating.
1: We just listened to Papekin Hayot, a piece created by CFUV's production team. After the break, we have some tips and tricks on how to eat some really tasty meals in the city while on a budget. That's coming up, so stick around. <laughs>
0: for full circle comes from oak bay bikes serving cyclists in victoria for over 80 years are you curious about e-bikes check out the oak bay bikes demo on demand program at oak bay bikes e is for everyone for more information visit oak bay bikes in victoria or on the west shore or online at oakbaybikes.com
1: from cfuv 101.9 fm you're listening to Full Circle. I'm your host, Jordan Barron. Welcome back. In this episode, we get the scoop on food in Victoria, the good eats and the tales that are attached to them. Our next piece comes with a lot of tips on how to get the most out of your meal when going out for food. Eat Magazine columnist Elizabeth Monk has been writing about food for years. Specifically, she's been on a quest to find the best spots in Victoria for good eats without spending a fortune. As Elizabeth sifts through the plethora of restaurants in the city, not only does she find some of the most flavorful dishes you can get your hands on, but she learns more about the community that feeds the city's hungry patrons. Get out your map, and make note of the tasty dishes Elizabeth recommends in Eat the City.
2: I'm from a foodie family, so my family has always been excited about food, but I remember reading a Bobsey Twins story where they went to Hawaii, Bobsey Twins go to Hawaii, and ate seaweed, and I was so excited. We went to a Japanese restaurant when I was eight, and this was back in the 70s, so it was a Japanese restaurant that did not have sushi, or seaweed, it was, you know, a beef restaurant, basically. So I asked the server for seaweed. Bobsy Twins. And she said, I'm sorry, we don't have that, which nowadays just is hilarious, right? But I I must have looked absolutely crestfallen because I saw her face fall too. And she went off and she brought me back a seaweed salad, which I'm guessing was part of the staff meal. And it was a wonderful moment because she was so happy for me. And I was so happy to be just like the Bobsy Twins. You know what? I don't remember the taste, I remember the feeling. I remember being excited to try something new. That was a strong value in my family. And I remember the feeling of connection with the server. She was so thrilled that I was interested in her culture. My name is Elizabeth Monk and I'm a food writer. I write a column for Eat Magazine called Eating Well for Less. I'm from a family that's obsessed with food. It was the greatest thing about my childhood. We all loved oysters as an example. And I think my mom used to like to show us off. She used to like to show off her raw oyster eating toddlers. We always had great cheese in the house. I had a shock when I went to university and realized there were you know, products like Kraft. I was spoiled when it came to food. I wasn't spoiled in everything. I wasn't spoiled in clothes. I wasn't spoiled in a lot, but I was spoiled in food. About 14, 15 years ago, I was flipping through an Eat magazine and on the side I also did a bit of acting and modeling through a local agency and I noticed the editor of Eat magazine, Gary Hines, he was using Barbara Coltish models to eat food in a magazine and I thought that is the perfect job for me. an oyster story that needs a model, like sign me up. So I set up a meeting with him and I brought my model's book. But in setting up the meeting, I'd mentioned I was doing some work at Shaw. And he said, oh, we need writers. So if you have any ideas, bring them to me. So I went to the meeting. He spent like five seconds on my modeling book, like, not interested, but he was interested in my idea. And I was a little bit brave of me because at the time the magazine Pitch more high-end, and I said to him, you know what? I can't afford to go to the Sue Harbor House every month, or ever, you know, occasionally. I think you need a budget column for people who have a $10 bill, I wanna go downtown, I wanna have a good meal, for 10 bucks I don't wanna waste it on a tuna sandwich. And he was really open. So I wrote a sample column, apparently readers loved it, and I walked into being a columnist. I've been doing the Eating Well for Less column for a long time. For 13 years now and you know what I'm still focused on it because I think it's really really important I have two main tips number one is a classic tip you go to the place at lunch and you get the same food for significantly cheaper you can for example go to sizzling tandoor and have their lunch buffet Indian food lends itself to buffets curries are meant to be simmered so a buffet, it's perfect. Their food is at such a high level, so complex, and it's an all-you-can-eat buffet for $14. It includes dessert, it includes non. It's a ridiculously good bargain. My second main tip is to hit happy hours. And I know most people think happy hours equals alcohol, and my brain is not going there because some places also offer some half price appetizers. So you want to look at Veneto and 10 Acres in downtown Victoria for their happy hours between four and six because you can get a ton. Of tasty food for half price. Obviously, they're hoping you'll order drinks as well, and that's only fair. But hey, it's up—it's up to you. The last time I was at Ten Acres, they were offering a pie and pint for ten dollars. Chicken pot pie and pint for ten dollars. Definitely check out Veneto and Ten Acres for their happy hour menus. I just remembered another tip I have for eating on a budget. Look at. Sushi platters like look at, look at bringing in Kind of bulk level food if you and your friends are going to share So my family will sometimes go to Fujiya and get this massive Sushi platter we will sometimes invite another family and it actually works out depending Where we go how we do it to eight to ten bucks per person another thing I do is I go to Deep India, which is a catering company, and I order a mass of their vegan samosas, a mass. And if you're ordering them from a catering company, they're a buck each, a buck. They're delicious, they freeze well. I'll order a hundred and put them in my freezer. I'll also order a Indian wedding level size vat, of butter chicken, which looks expensive because I just paid 80 bucks for all this butter chicken, but then I freeze it, I put it into little bags, I pull it out on stressful days and it actually works out to be very, very affordable. Also, that way I can randomly invite a guest and put on a butter chicken dinner and they think I'm a genius.
0: What's the process like when you are writing a review or article?
2: I research the restaurants. Sometimes my friends send me in tips. I'm off this job right now but often I've taught international students at Camosun College major resource. Follow the international students, right? Where they're eating is probably gonna be good food. So I do my research. I pitch it to my editor because he has the big picture. We don't want overlap between me and another writer. I phone the restaurant up, and I go in, I do an interview, I taste the food and I write it up. My daughter always tries to come along with me. She's sneaky that way. <laughs> she's 13 and she's told me, just informed me that when she turns 21, she's gonna take over my column. I consider the appearance of the food. I consider the complexity or the purity of its simplicity. It really depends. I consider texture a lot. is really important to me. I personally don't care a lot about decor. I don't think that's fair to judge when I'm writing a column called Eating Well for Less. I just want great food. I don't look for it to be 100% organic because that's not always fair. It's not always reasonable. There are local farmers who are doing almost organic but don't want to pay the money for the official authentication but are still doing good work. I find I notice layers of flavor where there's a base and top notes in the same way that some people might notice that about music. I recently ate at Ruth and Dean and I had their breakfast sandwich and I love it when a restaurant can take something that sounds mundane, but they can add a sauce, a twist, a level that elevates it. And Ruth and Dean has totally done that with their breakfast sandwich. They made an absolutely delicious sauce. It made the breakfast sandwich into an experience,
0: not just a meal. What are some of your favorite restaurants to go to in Victoria?
3: There's
2: such a range and it can so depend on your mood. I'm urging you, I'm begging you to go to Fudo, F-U-D-O. It's in Broadmead Village. It's a surprising place for a great restaurant. This guy was offered work at Tojo's in Vancouver, which is internationally renowned as one of the best restaurants in North America. He couldn't afford to live in Vancouver, so he came here. So we have that level of food going on in Broadmead Village. Amazing. I really like Ox King for Chinese my international daughter iris is from beijing and she tasted the food with me and she said yes this is beijing street food 100 percent authentic i really love the braised beef dish it uses about 10 different spices so you have this dance going on in your mouth with every single bite if you happen to live in sydney or be doing an airport drop off of somebody I just had a blast at Chuck's Burger Bar. I, I'm i not usually, I usually don't go out for a burger necessarily. I like burgers, but it sounds plain, but it isn't. They took bacon and ground it up and turned it into a burger. I'm not kidding you. What I look for in a restaurant is absolutely the food. And you know what? It doesn't have to be fancy. If it's a great burger, fabulous. If it's a great sandwich, fabulous. If it's a great albacore tuna salad with balsamic, sure, yeah, obviously I'm excited too. But good food can come in many guises. I do look at the presentation because it doesn't take a lot to add color contrast to make a plate look pretty. And then for me, the decor is a bonus. Another place of mine that's a favorite is Saigon Night. It's just so warm and welcoming. My whole family loves their ginger tofu. It's our warm, fuzzy place. Like it's at the point where we walk in and she just puts on an order of ginger tofu because she knows my daughter is going to inhale it. And it's extraordinarily welcoming for small children. They've had their own grandchildren's great, great nieces running around. If you bring a toddler, they'll be grateful. I have a big crush right now on a Senegalese restaurant called Le Petit Dakar and it's on Esquimalt Road near Head, extremely modest looking when you go in, who cares. The woman, Bintu, who runs it is so friendly, so warm, so welcoming. She'll tell you, if you're interested, she will tell you about the Senegalese food. There's a range of foods from vegan to meat and she is such a great cook. She did some training at Camosun actually and I think just naturally is a great Senegalese cook. And I love being able to go out for great food and be immersed in a new culture and have a conversation with someone where i learn so much
0: what would you say is the most readily available type of food in victoria
2: it's really hard to answer because there are trends and there are preferences right now middle eastern is totally totally on the rise and i'm so happy to see it because it's so healthy there are so many vegetarian options it's great I just ate at Super Baba and had, oh my goodness, a delicious cauliflower shared dish. It was great. I recently went to Yala downtown and it was simple but delicious. Also, my former neighbor, who's a Syrian refugee, is working there and he's showed the owners a couple of twists from when he was managing a restaurant back in Lebanon. So that's awesome. My family is obsessed with standard pizza the bacon and egg pizza in particular and you can order extra eggs so you're not all fighting over the egg that's important it's it just turns pizza into a party it is the flavors are amazing
0: but i've never heard of a bacon and egg pizza before eggs on pizza i know weird right it sounds amazing it sounds so delicious
2: (laughs) Food writing is a really wonderful job to have. It's not one that a lot of people can do full-time ironically and hope to eat but it brings a lot of joy not just trying new foods but also meeting members of the food community. Back in the day there was a restaurant called Taste of Eritrea. Eritrea is between Ethiopia and Somalia loved it and after I'd been in to do the interview and do the story I would stop by a lot because a I loved the food and B it was on the same block as the public library she would offer me food I said thank you it you know I want to pay for it your small business I know how hard this is this happened like two or three times and finally she said to me Ruth said to me she said Elizabeth I'm not offering you food because you're a food writer, I'm offering you food because you're pregnant. She said, in my culture, it's the community's responsibility to feed pregnant women. When I was pregnant back at home, I got hungry once, and I knocked on the back door of a church where there was a wedding going on, and I asked if I could have some food because pregnant women can do that. It's the community's responsibility.
0: Has writing about food changed the way that you go out for food in your spare time?
2: Well, here's the irony. Outside of my column, I don't eat out a lot because it does add up. We really love going out for my column. We sometimes get standard pizza. We sometimes will go get our ginger tofu at Saigon night. And other than that, we save it for special occasions.
0: Has it changed the way that you make food at home then?
2: Oh, sometimes I get ideas and try to copy them. Sometimes I get reminded of really affordable dishes, like with the resurgence in Middle Eastern food in town, I've been reminded that dips can count as a meal. And I'm making way more bean dips now after being inspired at Yala. What I love about being a food writer is how it connects me to community, not only to the local food that is so abundant and delicious, but also to the restaurant owners who are so passionate about what they do. They work so hard, they earn so little, they're under so much stress. I'm honored to have met some of these really brave individuals.
0: Do you feel as though you're kind of a part of a food community then?
2: Yes and no, because I don't have official training in cuisine. So what my strength has been as a writer is that I'm really, I feel I'm pretty unbiased about the restaurants I choose because I'm not part of the food community. I've never worked in a restaurant in town. I don't have restauranteur friends who phone me and are like, come cover me. I wander around downtown and I have my own ideas and I get suggestions from my international students (laughs) and my friends. At the same time, I do get to at least have a conversation with people who work in the food industry, and I get to learn so much from them.
0: Thank you to Elizabeth Monk for participating. To learn more about Eat Magazine and the Eating Well for Less column, visit eatmagazine.ca.
4: Selfishness is exhausting. I sit around, I do nothing.
1: That piece, Eat the City, was put together by CFUV's production team. Our last story looks into this generation's food scapegoat. As one may remember from several years ago, many an article was written on how the masses were spending their fortunes away on fancy lattes and coffees instead of saving what they could to afford a house. Fast forward to now, and the song has changed only slightly, with the culprit of unaffordability being a recently popular breakfast item. Yes, I'm talking about the much-loved, much-dreaded Avocado on Toast. As this item can be found on many a brunch menu in Victoria, our producer Max took a morning to review the different orders of avocado toast you can purchase in the city. And then she did some math. Have a listen to her findings in Brunch Club.
0: So, I guess we know we won't know until we get the bill. But do you think that this avocado toast is worth it? Yes. What's better, this avocado toast or buying a home? Think might buying a home. <laughs> um, it's hard to say. I don't know. Why is it taking you so long to answer? <laughs> I, I'm very sorry. There's a famous quote by Benjamin Franklin that says something along the line of, the only thing that can be certain is death and taxes. You can adjust that idiom to give it more of a local feel by saying, Victorians can be only certain of two things, paying way too much in rent and being a five minute walk away from a brunch spot. Victoria, BC is the official brunch capital of Canada, boasting the highest number of restaurants per capita in the country and falling second only behind San Francisco in all of North America, Victoria foodies have 264 different restaurants to choose from when they want to go out to eat. Of those restaurants, more than a handful open their doors at early hours to hungry patrons and keep breakfast going into the afternoon for late risers and brunch enthusiasts. You can grab a traditional Scottish breakfast at one of two Shine Cafe locations, or you can wait in a tremendous line outside of Jam Cafe to get a taste of one of their sweet or savory pancake stacks. There's eggs upon eggs at Molay, tasty vegetarian and vegan fare at Rebar, and innovative breakfast plates at the village. If you're avocado-obsessed like me, you can also head to basically any brunch spot in Vic to grab a slice or two of avocado toast. You may also, like me, be on the hunt for affordable housing with very little luck. Where Victoria holds a gold medal in Canada for brunch spots... It takes bronze as the third most expensive city to rent an apartment. Those wishing to buy a home are also facing a hot market, with the average price of a home being estimated at just under $650,000, according to data collected by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. That's an 11.3% jump from the average price in March of 2016. So, what is there to do for millennials that wish to continue living in this vibrant city? Should I write the mayor to complain about the dire housing situation? Do I rally with my community for higher wages? According to Australian millionaire mogul Tim Gurner, the answer is much simpler than that. Gurner took some time during his appearance on 60 Minutes Australia to deliver a message to millennials around the world. We are coming into a new reality where first-home buyers, second-home buyers, and a lot of people won't own a house in their lifetime. That is just the reality of where we're going. So you think that young people have now got the prospect of never owning a home? Absolutely, when you're spending $40 a day on smashed avocado and coffees and not working. Uh, Of course. Absolutely. If you didn't catch that, Tim Gurner has let millennials know that if they were to stop spending so much money on avocado toast, that they may, in fact, be able to afford a home in their lifetimes. As a mashed avocado and bread enthusiast, I was shocked to hear this news. Am I really spending the equivalent of a mortgage on avocado toast each week? Could I be living in a toxic brunch environment where the restaurant owners of Victoria are wreaking havoc on the ability of its residents to afford a place to live? To save the good name of my favorite breakfast item, I had to find out. I began my investigation by looking into the price of a house in my beloved neighborhood of North Park. Known for being the recreation hub of the city, North Park boasts affordable housing among the pools and arenas situated there. I've called this neighborhood home for more than half of the time I have spent in Victoria, and I would love to stay in the area. Thankfully, just a few doors down from my apartment sits a modest, 105 year old, two bedroom, one bathroom house with a for sale sign on the front lawn. Listings suggest that the houses on this block are being redeveloped and that the house in question is a shovel ready project. The asking price? (laughs) $698,000. Keeping in mind that this is $50,000 above the average price of a home in Victoria, we will use this for a frame of reference on how much I would have to spend on my new home. With this information in mind, I set out with my good friend and fellow house hunter, Kalis, to scope out the avocado toast climate among a few different brunch places in our city. So Kalis, what are we doing today? avocado toast. Excited? Yeah. Good. For our first stop on the avocado toast tour to Victoria that Saturday morning, we headed down Johnson Street to Mole, a breakfast and lunch joint sandwiched in between two coffee shops just a short walk away from City Hall. The place was packed, with a line out the door just to get on a wait list. I asked the hostess if anything avocado was on the menu. Yes, she smiled. We put avocado on absolutely everything here.
4: Are yeah. you good? You guys ready to order? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, Could we grab two orders of avocado toast? Absolutely, yeah. And you guys want more sugar? After a shorter than expected wait, we were seated in the bustling restaurant. my thank you so much. We received our toasts promptly. Along with a complimentary salad.
4: Uh, they wow, this is actually
0: really nice plating. Right? Okay. There's like not very much avocado though. This is like maybe a quarter of an avocado.
1: Yeah. Can no? we get
0: an extra little side of like salad? Yeah. This is nice. Like cabbage like, and
4: like all that. This like, is very very uh, nice. I guess you can...
0: And when the bill came, we were pleasantly surprised. Not
4: bad. No. Yeah. So that's five twenty-five.
0: Yeah. Not bad. No, not bad. Let's think about this for a second. If one order of avocado toast cost $5.25 at Molay, it would take refraining from eating at Molay 132,952 times before I could afford my prospective new home. That's 2,556 years of saving up. If, instead of eating avocado toast only once a week, I ate it every day, it would still take 364 years of saving up my precious avocado money before I would be a homeowner. At that rate, if I started saving now, I would be purchasing the shovel-ready home I have my eye on by 2381. Not a bad inheritance for my grandchildren's grandchildren. The quest for avocado justice continued after we left Malay, as we set our navigation to our next brunchery. So where are we going now? We're going to Shine. Okay. Shine Cafe is a family-owned establishment which has been open since March 2004. Since then, Shine Cafe has opened a second location downtown. The jury is out on whether or not Shine's second location was made possible by this new excessive brunch spending epidemic. All right. Oh, not too bad. Not too, too bad, Now We sauntered into the downtown location, which was surprisingly quiet for a Saturday morning. Hi, how's it going? Yes, good you. I won't long. We're just done. Sweet, perfect. After 10 minutes of waiting, we were seated and ordered our second plate of avocado toast for the day. What do we think about this? There's a little, there's a tiny bit more avocado here, it's still almost like just a quarter. Yeah. I feel like this is less of um, an actual, like, avocado toast plate, you know? Yeah, it seemed to me like the last place uh, was almost used to it or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. Whereas this is just, yeah, I mean, it's still nice, they still fanned it, but... <laughs> and again... When we received our bill, we had learned that we hadn't spent a fortune on our breakfast. Even better. Oh, nice. Even cheaper, yeah. so At the modest price of $4.25 for a plate of avocado toast, I would need to save for even longer to afford the house I chose out, as the price for that abode equates to 164,235 breakfasts. That's around 450 years' worth of daily avocado toast. If the pricing of houses remains the same, I would be able to buy that house in 2467 with my diligently hoarded avocado money. For the final stop on our tour de brunch in Victoria, we stopped at Rebar, a bustling, low-key vegetarian eatery situated in Bastion Square. Established in the mid-1980s by Oregonian restaurateur Audrey Alsterberg, Rebar serves up innovative vegetarian and vegan dishes for breakfast and lunch. Um, could we grab just two orders of uh, avocado toast? Yeah, totally. We sat at a tiny table at the end of the L-shaped diner and awaited our toast. So yeah. welcome. This is like the most avocado we've gotten. Uh, yeah, for four pieces of toast and a strawberry. And a strawberry. This is nice. This is good. We assumed that with this plate of top-tier toast, we would be breaking the bank. So you just got the bill. This one's pretty pretty pricey. Pretty pricey. Pretty pricey. I think we're gonna be sleeping on the street. Although $10.50 was the most expensive bill on our morning out, it would still take me a whopping 66,476 plates to equate buying the starter home in North Park. I would have to negate 182 years of eating avocado toast every day to pay for a home at this price. In this scenario, I would be settling into my home at the ripe old age of 205 in the year 2199. There's no doubt that brunch in this town is delicious. It's hard to turn down a late morning date with a couple of friends to sip on a cold-pressed juice and down a plate of avocado-covered breakfast, be that toast, salad, Mexican fusion eggs, Benny and guacamole, or whatever the chef du jour dreams up. With a restaurant and a rainbow of different cuisines to try on almost every corner in the city, the decision to stay home to eat seems that much more difficult. But it's true that eating out a lot is taking a toll on the wallets of millennials, too. I mean, after hitting three brunch spots with a friend, I was short on cash for the next couple of weeks. You also have to keep in mind that when millennials are going out to eat, they're not just buying scarce amounts of avocado toast like I was they're most likely pairing their entree dish with an alcoholic beverage, or maybe an appetizer to share, or both. So, what is there to do for those who want to prove the statistics wrong and buy a house in the next 60 to 80 years? Do I have to choose between paying my rent and stocking up on my favorite green, spreadable snack? Why is it so difficult to find and keep housing in Victoria? And most importantly, Does it really take just nixing the avocado toast to be able to afford a home? Whatever the outcome, I'm going to have to start eating avocados at my own kitchen table to discover the answers.
1: That was Brunch Club, a piece created by members of CFUV's production team. If you enjoyed our program, please subscribe, rate, and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more stories like these, head over to cfuvpodcasts.com or soundcloud.com slash cfuv. Our intro is composed and performed by Poddington Bear. The outro for this episode is Gender, written and composed by Painted Fruit. Other music in this episode was performed by Busada and Bridal Party, respectively. Musicians from Victoria. Our producers for this episode are myself and Max Collins. This program is created by CFUV's podcasting production team. If you want to be part of creating high-quality spoken word programming, head to cfuv.ca to find out more. Full Circle is made possible with the generous support from Oak Bay Bicycles and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm your host, Jordan Barron. This is Full Circle. Thanks for listening.
0: Support for Full Circle comes from Oak Bay Bikes, proudly serving the cyclists among UVic students and faculty since 1963. Visit Oak Bay Bikes in Victoria or on the West Shore or online at oakbaybikes.com.